Well, good morning, everybody. How about that worship this morning? That was pretty good, wasn't it? That's great. Good stuff. Great looking crew here at 11 o'clock this morning, and we're thankful that each and every one of you are here with us today. And students, y'all have been the most prayed for people in Pensacola, I believe, this weekend. We have been blessed to have the opportunity to pray that God would do a new thing in your life in a wonderful way. And I know you've had a great weekend today, and I was telling them backstage just a minute ago, my prayer is that I don't come out this morning and mess everything up. I don't want to do that today, but we're going to preach the word. Anybody ready to get in the word for a few minutes this morning? Amen. Well, let's do it. Matthew chapter 7 for a few minutes this morning. If y'all are new, anybody new in the house today, if y'all are welcome, first of all, really grateful to have new friends here with us today, be sure to let us know that you're here. There's a guest registration card. Visit an info center, and they'll give you some neat things to take home with you today. But just know that we're grateful that you're here. Those of you worshiping with us online, we're especially grateful that you're taking time wherever you may be to tune us in on the web and uh, just enjoy God with us today. And we pray that he'll have a great and wonderful word for you this morning. We're in a series of messages here at Hillcrest where we're identifying about a dozen or so of the important and challenging questions that Jesus asked in his three-year ministry. If you take a comb and kind of run it through the four gospels, you'll find that Jesus asked a lot of questions. You can count them up and they'll be somewhere around 200. I'm sure he asked a lot more than 200 over the course of his three-year ministry. But there are about 200 of them recorded in the pages of the Bible. And some of them um, have, I think, a special significance. Jesus taught by using stories like parables and Jesus taught people when he healed them and when he raised them from the dead through miraculous acts like that. But as much as anything, Jesus taught by asking questions. And the purpose for which Jesus asked questions was to sharpen those who were following him. And so in this series, we're looking at some of the pointed questions of Jesus that are designed to kind of create really sharp disciples who understand what it is that's really important in life so that we can please the Lord with our life, which is really what life in Jesus is all about. Paul says we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. And so uh, the question that we're going to look at today for a few minutes is a really debated question. Here's the deal. I didn't pick this I scheduled these series of messages last year. And so what even thinking about today, but this is going to be a really important question because it's one that is battered about, particularly among young people today, but not just among young people. The question we're going to look at today is one of the most debated questions that Jesus ever raised. In fact, you saw it on the screen a moment ago. The question is this, why fixate on the speck? That's kind of the shortened version of it. Jesus said, why do you notice the speck that is in your brother's eye, but fail to notice the log that's sticking out of your own eye? Why fixate on the speck? Now again, that's one of the most debated questions that Jesus ever raised, and not only the question, but really the statement that starts the paragraph that we have in our Bibles as Matthew chapter 7. Most of you probably here today have Matthew 7, 1 memorized. 
where Jesus says, do not judge lest you be judged. How many of you here today knew that was in the Bible? Would you just raise your hand? Yeah, I mean, everybody here knows that. You know why? Because from what I've read, this has become the most memorized book, a verse in the whole Bible. Back when I was growing up, it was always John 3.16, right? This verse is now known by more people, so I'm told, than John 3.16. For people that don't go to church, this may be the only verse of Scripture that they have memorized at all. But many of them know this one. Don't judge, lest you yourselves be judged. So this has become a very popular verse for people to commit to memory. And having said that, I, I feel compelled to say this morning that probably the only thing that surpasses this verse in terms of its popularity, if I could be honest today, is its misappropriation. Probably the only thing that passes its popularity is its misunderstanding and its misuse. Truthfully, most people read this and they kind of filter out everything else that comes after it. In fact, um, when I was in the coffee shop this week, I had the, the passage out on my phone, the particular Bible app that I was using, and I just screenshotted what uh, I was looking at, and there it is. I mean, that's, that's a screenshot right off of my phone, which is basically Matthew 7, 1, verse, or verse 1 down to verse 6. But the way that most people approach this passage and interpret this passage looks more like this. Can I have an amen this morning? See, this is what most people do when they approach the first part of Matthew chapter seven. They highlight or they circle or they underline verse one and then they systematically, they may not scratch it out in their Bible per se, but they ignore it. You know, they kind of scratch it out in terms of their mind and their consciousness. They don't want to really come to grips with everything else that Jesus says after it. So I have kind of a novel thought this morning. Why don't we like look at the whole passage today? Would that be all right with everybody? And maybe we'll just start by reading the whole passage and then I'll give you two or three things to chew on that might help better understand what Jesus is really trying to communicate here in this very important passage when it comes to Christian life and Christian living. Matthew 7 and verse 1. Everybody ready to read? Say amen. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Let's just read verse five together. Let's just say it out loud together. Ready? Together. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, if you're taking notes this morning, three very simple things to consider as we try to keep from fixating on the specks that we often see in everybody else's life. First of all, understand the difference between two concepts. 
judging on the one hand and judgmentalism on the other. That's the first thing you have to come to grips with, that there is a difference between judging and being judgmental. I think that ought to be obvious in just the simple reading of the passage, namely that not all judging is wrong. It's okay. What is a judgment? When Jesus uses the word like judge, he's talking about making a discernment, making some kind of a, of a moral or a spiritual evaluation based on what you see or what you observe in society, in the culture, in the life of a friend, whatever the case might be. Whenever you do that, you're making a judgment. It's a moral or a spiritual evaluation of, of some kind. And it's not really hard to understand why people would read this and they would want to stop with the statement that just says, do not judge. I mean, everybody understands why we would like that because nobody likes to have their behavior second guess. We don't want anybody forming an evaluation of what I choose to do with my life or choose not to do with my life. We don't want people casting uh, discernment about how we use words or with the places we go or the things that we want to do. What we want to do is set up our own standards for our life and tell people to get lost. This is the way I'm going to live my life. This is what I'm going to choose to do. So we set up our own standards and then we adjust them as we go along. And that's what makes this one of the most popular statements in the Bible today. People quote it back to you as if to imply you should never form any kind of moral judgment about what it is they're doing or saying with their life. You should never criticize anything anybody else ever does. But can I just say something this morning? That's just not true. It's not true. If it were true, can I just say today, you'd have to take your Bibles and you would have to rip entire letters out of the Word of God. You'd have to rip rip many of the statements of guys like the Apostle Paul out of the Bible. First and foremost, like the letter of 1 Corinthians. Because Paul was writing that letter to a messed up church. Where there was a guy having sex with his father's wife. And where people were getting drunk and having a party off the communion wine systematically shutting out the have-nots by miscommunicating to them when they were actually getting together so that by the time certain people came to the supper, it was already over. Mean-spiritedness going on in the family of faith. So if you're careful to read 1 Corinthians, what you're going to find is Paul basically making one running judgment after another against people who were self-identifying as followers of Jesus Christ. If Jesus were telling us, never make a judgment against anybody else's behavior, that letter has got to go. So does Galatians for that matter and many others after it. So that can't be what Jesus is talking about. When Jesus says, do not judge, he's not telling you, you got to put your brain on a shelf to follow Jesus. And he's surely not telling you, you got to put your Bible on the shelf to follow Jesus. He's not saying you ought to never have an opinion. You ought to never exercise any kind of spiritual or moral discernment when it comes to behavior and when it comes to the relationships of your life. He's not saying that all judging is wrong or that it's wrong to speak truth into people's lives 
or that it's wrong to help brothers and sisters realize that some of what they may choose to do in life is actually not good for them, not in the will of God, and in the long run, really unhealthy. That's just keeping one another accountable, which is like what the church is supposed to do. So anytime you make a a moral or an ethical or a spiritual pronouncement, whenever you do that, whenever you make a statement like sex outside of marriage is wrong, guess what? You're making a judgment. But you're not forming that judgment based on your own self-concocted criteria. You're making that judgment not on your opinion, but based on what God has clearly already said. And that's the process of what we call spiritual accountability within the body of Christ. The Bible's got a lot. Does the Bible have anything to say about honesty? Does the Bible have anything to say about infidelity or authority or cheating or stealing or a hundred other different kinds of things? You bet it does. And when God speaks to an issue, the issue really isn't up for debate. That's a spiritual, moral, ethical pronouncement that the Bible teaches. Sometimes we have this tendency in the body of Christ to major on grace, and we should major on grace because last time I checked, we're all sinners in need of it. Amen. But that's not to say that you dumb down truth at the expense of grace because the Bible does teach some things are healthy and some things are not real healthy. But whenever you make a pronouncement like that, you make sure you're standing firm on the word of God. These aren't matters of personal opinion. They're things that God has already said. So when Jesus says, do not judge, really what he's doing is he's getting at the attitude of your heart. Really and truly what we need to do is kind of insert in parentheses there, I think, to properly interpret it, the word unfairly. Do not judge others unfairly. That's what Jesus is getting at. Don't judge others hypercritically. Don't judge others selfishly. Because Jesus is making a distinction between passing a judgment based on what the Bible says and being judgmental in terms of the attitude of your heart. And you all know what I mean by judgmentalism. Somebody that has a judgmental spirit is really critical. They tend to be mean-spirited. I mean, they're criticizing for the sake of criticizing, almost so that they feel better about themselves by heaping criticism on something that they assume is wrong. It's caustic. Sometimes we can go over the top when we do it and become mean-spirited. So that you, have you ever had anybody criticize you and as they're criticizing you, you look, they look more like the devil than they do like Jesus while they're doing it? They have a mean tone, a mean spiritedness about them. And it's always wrong to do that. That's judgmentalism. But particularly when you're criticizing somebody for doing something or saying something that you yourself are doing and saying, that's really when it's bad. And that becomes hypocrisy with a capital H. Oswald Chambers, who is the great Scottish evangelist, said the average Christian can be the most piercingly critical individual known. Sometimes that's true. It's not always true, but it can be true. 
The Bible teaches really there's only one person that's qualified to make a judgment against another person's heart. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. James chapter four, beginning in verse 11. James, of course, was the half brother of Jesus. And so he would have been well aware what the teaching of Jesus was about this issue. And here's what he says about it. James 4, 11. Brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but setting in judgment on it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Now, again, James is not talking about taking the word of God and and making a spiritual evaluation based on what you see. He's talking about your approach toward other people, how you deal with them. Do you deal with them harshly, critically, or with much grace and tenderness, mercy and compassion, and much love? So this is kind of the first way to properly, I think, understand this passage. Jesus is not saying never make a judgment. What he's really saying is quit trying to play God. There are times to judge and there are times not to open your mouth. Sometimes you just have to decide that you don't have all the facts and probably the best thing to do is just give people an extra amount of grace, which is exactly what we need God to do with us. Amen? So understand the key difference, and there is one. And that leads to kind of a second observation here, and that is be careful not to evaluate rules as more important than relationships which sometimes is easy to do, particularly when we're the ones making the rules. Now, the truth of God's word is eternal, and you never water that down. But a lot of times, we'll create our own standards for other people, and that's the criterion by which we'll judge other people, and that's always wrong. We'll make those rules that we've established more important than the relationship or more important than the person. I've known people in my ministry, you don't see them much anymore. My father, or my grandfather rather, was in the lumber business. And I can remember when I was a little kid, my mother was the bookkeeper, she kind of managed the business, but my grandfather was always out in the mill yard and there were always piles of shavings and piles of sand and boards everywhere. And I can remember some of my earliest memories being out there kind of playing around some wonder I didn't get cut to pieces because I was just turned loose out there. And I can remember he used to give freebies of these yardsticks out. Anybody here even know what a yardstick is anymore? I actually have one down in my office. I kind of just keep it as a trinket, as a memento. And, but a yardstick is, a guess what, a yard long, and it's a little piece of wood, kind of narrow, and you can measure with it and the like. Have y'all ever known anybody that carried a yardstick around with them? I mean, not a real yardstick, but they kind of had one in their coat pocket or in their uh, pants pocket. And it was almost like they evaluated everything that you or everybody else did. They measure everybody against their own yardstick. They're hypercritical. And the problem with that is it's real easy in the body of Christ when you have your own self-designed yardstick by which you tend to hold everybody else accountable it's very easy for some people to become what I call spec hunters. 
It's one thing to notice a speck that needs to be taken out of a friend's eye. It's another thing when you go around and you make it your mission in life to find them, right? And I've known a lot of people who are like that. Truth be told, I may have even been like that some in my life. I remember when we were on vacation in Destin, Florida years ago, back when I didn't live in Florida. We used to come to Florida to get away. I just never thought I'd live here. And I learned a valuable lesson about forming opinions without having all the facts when my daughter Whitney was really young. She was three or four years old and we were staying at a condo in Destin. We lived in Missouri at the time and um, we had come to Destin to get away and I had taken her up by the kiddie pool. And then there was the big pool just down from it, but I was stationed in a lounge chair by the kiddie pool. And Whitney had all of her plastic garden implements there. She had her watering bucket and she had the, the, the little bucket that she could pour the water in. And then she had the little shovel and then she had the little spade. They were all made out of plastic. I don't know what she was doing. Don't you wish you could get into kids' minds and figure what is it that they're doing with these toys and water? She was having a great time until all of a sudden her privacy got interrupted by a girl about three times her size. I guess the girl to be somewhere between, between 10 and 12 years old and she came over, got in the water, minded her own business for a little bit, then came over at one point, picked up a toy and started playing with it and that didn't seem to irritate Whitney all that much but then one toy became two and two toys became three and before I knew it, she had all the toys to herself, this older girl did. And Whitney just didn't know she was non-confrontational, so she didn't know what to do with that. And so eventually she just got out of the water and ambled over to me, reading a John Grisham novel in the lawn chair. Can I have an amen? John Grisham in the lawn chair. That was back in the day where everybody at the beach had a John Grisham novel. And she came over to me with tears in her eyes and I said, what's the matter? And she said, well, this girl's come over and she's taking all my toys. And at first I thought she was embellishing. I said, well, she didn't take all your toys. And then I looked and sure enough, she had them all heaped up together, playing with them. And so I, being a good and godly father, walked over to the young girl and I began to try to reason with her. Say, hey, we don't have a problem sharing. Whitney will share with you, but maybe you give her one or two toys and you take one or two and then you can swap out. And she looked up at me, gathered up those toys, picked them up and began to walk away from me. And I, of course, knowing the Bible from cover to cover, did the right thing and I followed after her. (laughs) Not so much going to do anything to her, but I, I wanted to see if her mom and dad were nearby and they were. And so as she got closer to where other people were, and remember she's about three times the size of Whitney, her father gets up and he's about three times the size of me. And so I thought, oh man, I mean, this is, I'm on vacation. I'm trying to get away from this stuff, not walk into it. And so he came up and he said, is there a problem? And I explained what the problem is. And I said, look, we're happy to share, but she's got all the toys. And he said, hang on just a second. And he went over and he took his daughter and she got noticeably irritated. He separated her from the toys, put his hand under her rear end 
and systematically shot put her into the air, throwing her into the middle of the adult swimming pool. And she began to swim and she was the happiest thing in the world. She could swim like a fish. And then he came back to me and he said, let me apologize. What you probably don't know is she's autistic. And I had formed all these opinions about what a spoiled, stinking brat that kid was and what terrible parents she had that had instilled no respect and no discipline into her life. And in that moment, I was reaching for my wallet saying, here, let me give you some money or something. I mean, here's a $100 bill. Take it. I'm so sorry. I felt terrible. He was the sweetest thing about it. Sometimes you have to be very careful hunting for specks that may not be there just because you've defined them as a speck. It's easy to become a speck hunter. And when that happens, it's typically because you tend to be more about the rules than you are about people, than you are about relationships. One of the things that the Bible teaches is that you tend to get what you give in the kingdom of God. Look at the way Luke renders this same passage in Luke's gospel. Luke 6 and verse 37, judge not and you will not be judged. But then Jesus adds, condemn not and you'll not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Sometimes that's called the law of reciprocity. Sometimes it's called the law of sowing and reaping. You tend to reap what you sow in the kingdom of God. So how many of you really want God to be merciful to you? Would you raise your hand today? You want and desire the mercy of God. Okay, God would say, then you need to learn to be merciful to others. If you want God to be generous with you, you need to learn to be generous with God and be a giver. For God loves a cheerful giver, that's right. Give and it will be given to you. If you want the forgiveness of God, in fact, Jesus teaches about this earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6. If you want God to forgive you, you need to learn to be forgiving to others. Because living without forgiveness unalterably affects your relationship with God. You get what you give and reap what you sow in the kingdom of God. This is the problem with carrying around yardsticks that you use to measure everybody else against because what happens is the yardstick gets bent and it eventually becomes a boomerang. Does anybody here even remember what a boomerang is? One of those things, parabola looking things that you throw it and it's supposed to, if you throw it right, it comes back to you and you catch it. I read about a guy that died one time from, because he kept trying to throw his boomerang away and it came back, just kept hitting him in the back of the head. It's a bad joke. It's funny to me. Let's <laughs> see, your yardstick can become a boomerang and that's why you wanna be careful about criticism because if you meet it out unchristianly, it'll eventually find its way 
back to you. Life's what you put into it. Smile for smile, frown for frown, criticism for criticism. Never forget, you know what a sobering verse in the Bible? 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one of us may give an account of the things we've done in the body, whether good or bad. That's a sobering thought. And that's a verse directed to Christian people, not to the lost. They'll be judged, different criteria. But Christian people will be judged as well for what we've done, for the stewardship of our lives, how we've used everything God has given to us. And so that's why, here's the thing, speak truth to people. Iron sharpens iron. We, we love each other too much to let each other fail, to let each other persist in living in unhealthy, ungodly behavior. There are times to confront your friends. There are times to confront people in your family. Speak the truth to people, not with your own yardstick, but based on what God has already said. But when you do, check the caustic words at the door, amen. Check the critical spirit at the door, the unloving spirit, the ungracious attitude. Leave all of that at the door when you do it. Love others for who God created them to be. You remember that story when Jesus caught that woman in adultery? He didn't really catch her. There was a mob that caught her. And they drugged that woman who was having sex with somebody to whom she was not married and all of those guys in the mob. Have y'all ever noticed how in 21st century life, how quickly mobs get up today? 24-hour cable news, Twitter, Facebook. You can have a mob of thousands organized in a matter of minutes. And most of them will be fired up, red hot, mad, and it'll be over fake news, bad information. Well, that's kind of what happened here. Not so much fake news, but a mob got up. They were correct in what they said she'd done. They drug her to Jesus and flung her down at his feet. And you remember what Jesus did. I mean, even Jesus himself made a judgment that what she did was wrong. When he said, go and sin no more, What he was saying directly to her was, here's the thing, what you got caught doing was not right and God is not pleased, don't do it anymore. Because God can't bless that kind of behavior, right? So Jesus makes a judgment, but he did it with grace. Where are your accusers? Neither do I condemn you. Now repent. Go and leave your life of sin. Live in a way that honors and pleases God. Do you see the balance there? He spoke the truth, but he did it in love. And he did it with a heart of mercy. What you did was wrong, and you need to know it. But I still love you, and God still loves you. Now go and commit. Let's live to please God. Everybody with me so far? Amen. So, know the difference between judging and judgmentalism. And then, secondly, uh, 
be careful not to elevate rules over relationships. And then finally, evaluate yourself first. Evaluate yourself before you criticize others. Back to that story about the woman caught in adultery, you remember that all those guys eventually left her alone. There was the mob, the mob left, right? They all had rocks. The law says we've got a stoner. That was correct. But they all eventually dropped their rocks and they all eventually went away. And it's interesting that the reason that they did that, have you ever thought about why they did that so quickly? Why they dropped those rocks and why they went away? Because when Jesus, they brought her to Jesus, when Jesus started dressing the situation, he did something that they weren't expecting him to do. He transferred the focus of attention away from the woman and put it on the men. Let him among you who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. You're right, the evaluation that you've made is absolutely right, but your hearts are as corrupt as they can be And so, whoever is spot pure, let him first cast the rock. Now, what's interesting about that is before Jesus said that, anybody remember what he did? Who remembers what Jesus did before he makes that statement? He knelt to the ground, and what did he do? Say it out loud. He started doodling. He started writing in the dirt. Now, John, it's in John chapter 8. John doesn't tell us what he wrote, and everybody wants to know what did Christ write. Man, scholars have debated. Everybody wants to know. Wonder what he wrote down, and we have no idea. We may never know, probably will never know until we get to heaven. Then when we get to heaven, we won't care. Amen. I heard a guy say one time, you know what I think he was writing? I think he was writing the names of some women that some of those boys in that mob were keeping on the side. So he would write the name Naomi and then look at one boy over there and wink at him. (laughs) And over here he would write Elizabeth Anybody y'all know Elizabeth? You going to join her, honey? Right? And then he'd write another name. I don't know if that's true or not. So as good a guess as any, you know why? Because according to the Bible, those guys couldn't get away fast enough. Rock started hitting the ground. Let him who was without sin among you cast the first stone. And rock started hitting the ground and those guys were gone. So there's no question, he turned the focus of attention onto the crowd, onto the men, onto the ones who were critically evaluating. That's the thing about that kind of criticism. Jesus wanted them to look within first. Evaluate yourself first before you're so quick to condemn other people. And that's exactly what you have to do to keep from being judgmental. It's the focus of the famous question that's at the heart of our message today. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? I think Jesus knew those guys in the mob all had logs coming out of their eyes. And they needed to know it. 
How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck that is in your eye and take it out when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You are a hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye and then you'll see clearly to take the speck that is in your brother's eye. In English, we call that hyperbole. It's exaggerated speech to make a point. Nobody has a telephone pole sticking out of their eye, but Jesus is trying to make a point that most of the time, the hypercritical people that you know are sometimes the most hypocritical people that you know. Adrian Rogers said that one time. The hypocritical tend to be the most hypercritical. And I don't know if you've noticed or not, the things that we tend to be most critical about are the things that we tend to struggle with the most. Many times when you know somebody's hypercritical, they're typically more messed up than the person they're fixated on. And this is why we need to start with a self-examination before we ever voice a criticism against somebody else. Not that the speck in the other person's eye is not a problem. The speck in our friend's eyes is a problem. It does need to be addressed. But what's even worse a lot of times is that the stuff we're dealing with in our own life is a bigger problem than what our friend's dealing with. Jesus does not tell us, don't try to get the speck out. That's not what he says. He says, deal with your own heart first. Deal with your own stuff first. Make sure that you have, a clean, have clean hands and a pure heart. Make sure that you're walking in the Lord in obedience to the will of God. And then you will see clearly so that you can address the speck in your brother's or your sister's eye. So that's what's important. Evaluate yourself first. Look at Romans 2 verse 1 and following. You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge the other, you're condemning yourself. Because you do the same things. Verse 3. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? See, that's when your yardstick becomes a boomerang. You critically measure, pronounce fault, but you're doing similar stuff and God knows. God knows every speck of your heart and mine. And it's probably a pretty good thing that we remind ourselves of that every day. So there's a time to judge. There is a time to confront. There is a time to speak truth to your friends and to your family. Specks need to be removed. Specks lead to infection. That speck, if left alone, could cause that whole eye to be diseased and have to be taken out and maybe worse. And this is what friends do. Friends confront construct or deconstructive behavior, destructive behavior, unhealthy behavior. We just make sure we do it with the right heart and the right standard, not my rules but God's word. You have to do more than fixate on the speck. And much of that rides on an honest evaluation of your own life first. Jesus already knows. 
He knows who you really are. He sees you and me right down to the last speck. But here's what's beautiful. If you know him by faith, his grace is always greater than our sin. Amen. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So as you walk with the Lord, speak the wisdom of God. Don't be ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Just make sure you don't play God in the process. Make sure you speak the truth in love and make sure that you treat others with the same amount of mercy, the same measure of grace that God has lavished on you. You do that, you'll make a difference in this world and you'll effectively minister the gospel of Christ in ways that are pleasing to him. This is God's word, and let all who agree say amen this morning.